All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Mike McClone, who is, of course, the uh, senior macro strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Okay, got that right. Mike, thanks for coming back on. Oh, thank you, Michael. I appreciate your Florida tan. It's uh, good to be back on. I would love to, maybe we can start off with um, your thoughts on the debt ceiling, which has gotten a lot of, uh, frankly, airtime, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to inform some questions that I'm going to ask you later on about uh, treasury positioning and uh, gold and silver and commodities. But I would love to, you know, before we dive into the details there, like, what are your sort of thoughts overall on the, the debt ceiling? I think there's one key way to end this impasse to make these two great parties come to terms and have an agreement. And that is um, when they get up in the morning, they read in the Washington Post, New York Times, that the stock market's going down a lot because they haven't agreed and there might be a default. They'll, they'll come to terms. Unfortunately, I think that's going to be the key thing right now. To wake up one morning and find out there's been an agreement would be delightful. We'd get a pretty significant um, risk on rally out of that Bitcoin and cryptos in the stock market. But I think that's the unlikely scenario. I think it's going to be like more like 2011. You get that 20% drop in the stock market and then they all come to terms. The key thing that's happening, this is so such part of what's going on, Michael. So what do we have to look forward to politically is we have an election coming up and two candidates, both, both most people in this country do not want to see run again are the lead, uh, leading candidates for their party's nominations. And then that's just, that's very depressing. And that's why I think I hate to use that word, but we're heading towards the, a tilt towards not just a recession, but a significant depression type scenario economically. And that's just part of it. Yeah, I think, you know, I we try to stay away from politics on the show, but I think we can pretty safely say uh, Trump versus Biden election. That is just a bummer for the country in general. I don't think anyone feels like they're winning yeah. there. That's uh, what's that going to do for the little... general feeling? It's always going already going bad. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. It just feels like, you know, we've got 350 million people in this country. I feel like we could put up two more interesting candidates. But um, so basically, is, is your sort of take then eventually, look, it's in it's in no one's long term economic interest here to default on the debt softer otherwise. So eventually, there's going to be a lot of hand wringing. Uh, but eventually, we're going to solve this. And kind of the, the most likely scenario is that the market panics a little bit up to that. And there's sort of like a 20% kind of dip, but then we eventually make up for that. Is that sort of the the base case for you? Um, my base case is we will go down that 20% in the equities, regardless of the, if this, uh, the oxymoron of default in U.S. government, that should never be something to be said. Maybe it'll be a delayed payment, um, but it, it'll all be worked out. Um, and everybody will get their U.S. dollars. Um, let me print more, but, um, we are seriously tilting towards a recession. The federal reserve is still tightening and the job winning out of fed governors is significant. You cannot. You know, don't fight the Fed has been one of my main mantras for well over a year, and it still is, that the key dichotomy you see is Fed fund futures price for from now, right now to the end of the year, about 70 basis points of cuts. And virtually every economist, our chief economist, Anna Wong, our chief strategist, Ira Jersey, and um, most of the Fed governors said, we're not going to be cutting rates. Saying that, that means there's only one way for that really to happen, for the futures market to be right, and that is for the stock market to go down and make it happen, unfortunately, which might be led by Bitcoin. So the situation we're in right now, I see, is mostly risk, lose, lose for risk assets. And you're seeing that in commodities. There's significant deflationary forces showing up in commodities. So I look at the, the, the politics are all part of it. To me, it's, it's the most overwhelming macro is that it's May. We just had a Fed hike. We've had two Fed hikes despite this banking crisis. And this is the kind of thing I think we're going to look back from the future and say, 
okay, well, we probably should never do that again because what resulted was a significant depression, maybe recession. It's a key thing that I say that. I don't like to say it as McGloom has been my nickname I've earned, but just point out the facts of liquidity and history, which I love getting on your program. We've never had a pump in liquidity like we've had um, up to that peak of money supply around 26% in 22, down negative now. Never had that. And we've never had the dump like we've had now in terms of not only just money supply, but you're seeing it in in, um, in bank deposits re- receiving. And just the lessons of history say we should expect some form of reciprocity in economic activity. Not complicated at all. So that means in the stock market, maybe just a normal 50% peak to trial re- um, correction. We've had that in the last two recessions. The key thing is in the leading markets, it's already happening, Michael. Like if I look at the most significant measure of uh, heat, electricity, and um, fertilizer in this country, natural gas has dropped to the same price as 1990. Significant deflationary forces. The Bloomberg Commodity Index is down 24% on a one-year basis. Copper has just broken down to down in the year, pumped 12%. There's still these little things. So I look at politics and everything. Yeah, that debt crisis is a pretty significant tree. But the forest is that we are tilting down towards a severe recession. Hasn't even started. And all the indications are right now, key question I'll leave you with is there's nothing I see on the radar at close that what can stop this downward trajectory at the moment. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I, I think one of, I'm not sure if you caught the the Stanley Druckenmiller interview that he did recently at the, um, blank on the name of the conference, but it was, it was a super illuminating interview, I thought. And one of the things that he highlighted, or at least one of my takeaways was just how uncertain of a period of time this, this is. And, you know, he's got 30 or 40 years in, in markets, but he's also a student of history as well, a financial historian. And he sort of drew the line to underscore how just unprecedented this particular period of time is. And one of the the little sound bites that I kind of took away was he said, I could make the case in three years for either 8% inflation or deflation. And obviously, there's a huge amount of space in between those two predictions or outcomes. So yeah, I, I would just love to, you know, I, I, I heard you've been writing a lot about deflation. Is your sort of view that we're in a, you know, all the forward indicators are, you know, yeah. pointing towards deflation, commodity prices are pointing that way. But then on the other side, there are some inflationary um you could make a, a bull case for inflation as well. So I'm wondering where you kind of come out on the, the long term there. To me, um, the base case from a year from now is we will be in severe deflationary situation. And it's already happening in commodities. I've pointed out it's happening in yields, already pointing that out. It's happening in virtually every indicator I look at. You look at here's here's one key fact, the producer price index around 2% now, last year's peak was 18 or so, is dropping at the fastest pace in history. And that goes back to 1948. Now that's got a two beta to CPI. Typically it, it runs ahead of it. If CPI is running 5%, PPI is usually 10%. It's a two beta. It's going to be negative. When we print the June number on July 13th, and it'll probably, it might have close might somewhat mimic the lowest level ever, which was July 2008 at minus, I'm sorry, 2009 at 6.9% because it's the measure. Crude oil peaked the year before and it, it bottomed that uh, during the measuring period. And it's just what happened. The Bloomberg Quad Index in, in crude oil peaked in June of 2020 of last year. When we measure PPI for June of this year, it'll be from the absolute peak. It'll be a negative number. If not, it'll be heading towards severely negative. So that's significant deflation. So let's take PPI minus Fed funds. It's negative. 
It's around almost it's negative like 2.5%. It's seriously contractory and contraction and recessionary. So here's the way I look at it. Those all my indicators, everything I look at are showing towards severe deflation. I can point out, like I mentioned, commodities are down 24% on an annual basis. Copper's just broken down in the year. It was up in the year. Uh, the, the Fed, it, bank, we have a crisis, bank crisis. We had money supply contracting. Number one thing that Ben Bernanke pointed out um, when he wrote his essays on the Great Depression, there's one key measure that's on the cliff's edge for deflation. That's the stock. So I think what's going to happen, risks of predictions, is the S&P 500 is right around four bit. I look at it as 4,000 bit. It's just going to go four offer and go down to three. Now, I say that I use these signals because I remember that in a trading biz. You'd see markets trading one, you know, one, two, one, two. Gold just was offered at two for years and it just went two bid. And I think it's going to end up going three bid. I just see that happening with the fundamentals. The stock market, now the S&P 500 has been hovering around this four level. It's four bid. And a lot of indications are saying it should go four offer. Once it does, I think it drops to three. In a normal recession, that that is your... Basically, on a 1 to 10 scale, that is everything kicking in at 10 for severe enduring deflation. And here's one key fact I'll end with is the Federal Reserve will just never ease with the ease they have in the past because of the lessons they learned from easing too much and inflation that resulted. Yeah. So I'd like that you sort of zeroed in on stocks there. I don't know if you caught the, not that you know we should be taking these people's words for gospel, but I don't know if you caught the interview that Paul Tudor Jones gave uh, today. He doesn't do too many. And you know, uh, this is the t- the title of the the Bloomberg article. It's Paul Tudor Jones says Fed hikes are over and stocks will rise this year. So if yeah, I were to make yeah. sort of the bull case for stocks here, is like let's just zoom out and look at where we are here. I think uh, again, Stan Druckenmiller, the quote you know before when before we started hiking rates was to cure every bout of inflation. We need to we need to get Fed funds over CPI, and we've actually crossed that. We now have Fed funds in between five and five. Uh, 0.25 and inflation year over year came in at 4.9. So I think you could, you know, make the make the argument that for the time being we've slayed the dragon, right? We we need to be concerned about all these forward-looking indicators in terms of commodities and the Empire Index, which came in today and it was a, a bloodbath. Um, so that you know we've we've sort of done what we needed to do in terms of inflation, and now we're going to maybe pause and then eventually ease. And over time, maybe like a year or two, that should be bullish for asset prices. What would you say to that argument? So I, I have to admit, I confused um, Paul Tudor Jones and Druck and Mule's outlook. So that's the one I heard this morning that Tudor Jones Got is it. looking for the S&P 5 to be higher. Five, to be, be higher. So I don't know for sure. He might say that for other reasons. I think that's unlikely. I think that would be wonderful. That would be great yeah. if that happens. But I like to point out, never forget from where you came. Um, and to me, what's happening is we're in the beginning of the process of the Overperformance, the outperformance of the U.S. stock market for about the last seven year, eleven years, just simply mean reverting. And what did that outperform versus the rest of the world in terms of MSCI, XUS, exponential? It looks like the U.S. stock market in 1929 had outperformed GDP, well above GDP. It outperformed housing, well above housing, and above sales. So to me, that's the process of reverting. And for that to stop, yes, maybe it'd be wonderful. We can have, but I still see earnings potentially. I hear them contracting on a 10% basis. And we haven't even started this recession. So I think that's a, an unlikely scenario without significant Fed easing. And that's what's changed. So I like to point out what's different from a lot of people who say, oh, okay, once the Fed's done tightening the stock market to do well, I remember that cycle in 1994, but it, can't, it, it has to, you have to remember from whence we, from where we came. 
we were just so expensive, the U.S. stock market. So I look at it as I used to, you know, I was in the trading pits in the 80s. I remember um, the Nikkei peaked in 90. It still hasn't got above that level, the Nikkei 225. You look at the Euro stocks index in Europe, I think it's the same price from 23 years ago, something like that. I could look at it in a second. So to me, that's the key thing. And, and that's why I rope in um, what's happening in um, treasuries. I look at it, this is also cyclical and it's um, part of what's happening with um, demographics. Every boomer in this planet, when they saw that two you note know, go to 5%, they said, thank you. I mean, if they did it, then they weren't advised though. And what happened, yeah. that was in March. And what's happened since then? So now it's offered at four at the moment. It's right around four yield. It's at four yield. I think it's going to go offered at three, partly because we all realize, okay, we've had a great run. Time to check in and say, thank you very much. And everything's tilting. I think we'd have to not get that recession. That's the highest probability since 1982 at the when you look at the yield curve. So here's another key factor. Look at unemployment. What, 3.2%, the lowest in how many years? Decades, 60 years or so? Yeah. There's never been a case of unemployment. And it's the state of goal of the Fed for unemployment to go higher. It's never been a case of unemployment trawling from such a low level without a severe recession, or a lot, at least a recession. And then I look at things like, why is the price of natural gas, the most significant measure of heat, electricity, and, and fertilizer in this country, dropped 80% and down to the same price as 1990. Why is copper giving up back all its gains? Those are ind indications on a global basis of a lack of demand pull. And what normally happens to commodities, humans create more of it for less. So I, I think good luck with that one. Sometimes people like that might not say exactly what their positions reflect for different reasons. You got to be careful with that. But I look at it, I'll end with this. I'm completely worried that crypto's the fastest horse in the race on the way down last year and everything has been up this year. Like I said, copper's given back that, that up. Cryptos are starting to give that back up. will be one of the first indicators of everything starting to tilt back downward. And what's the state of goal of the Fed? Keep rates higher until they can reduce the ability for people to buy stuff. It's not what they said, but it's kind of my interpretation. It's also what Jim Bianco has said. And we haven't really reduced the ability to buy stuff. Here's one key thing I was shocked by too, is yeah. if there's indication it's still massive speculation in this space and certainly in cryptos, the Fed, doesn't like is this Pepe coin or whatever the heck that was. It feels to me a lot like Shiba Inu was in 2021. It does. Yeah. So I, I've got a question. For, so as you mentioned, I was just in Florida. And as, as one does when, when you're in Florida, just hanging around, you, you speculate about what the Fed is going to do and interest rates and stuff like that. <laughs> and I was having a conversation with, with some of my buddies. And, you know, one of the things that I think it's super easy to forget is that there's a time lag in between kind of the cause and effect, especially in financial markets. And you know, let's let's remember that all these bank failures were happening. You know, in the case of First Republic, that was that was in May. You know, that was that was weeks ago, not even months. So I and when when Chair Powell, I think in one of his maybe not the most recent FOMC, but the one before, you know, he mentioned the failure of the bank and the banking system as being equivalent, roughly equivalent to another rate hike, right? And one of the yeah. things I'm kind of trying to think through here is there are we knew. For, for years, right? Not even just the last couple of years since COVID, but there have been basically rock bottom interest rates since 2009 relative to historical interest rates. So during that period of time, people probably baked those low interest rates into their financing and their business models, right? Now rates are higher and the Fed has indicated that they're going to hold them above 5%. I would end when you couple that with the fact that banks are less willing to lend. I have to imagine there are some business models out there that simply aren't viable. It's more than just bank balance sheets that are impaired or you know temporarily uh, illiquid. 
I, I would have to imagine that um, you know people made some bad decisions in these last eleven years. I would be curious if you agree with that. Um, if you think I'm off base on that line of reasoning, or if you have any thoughts on what those. That's what I, I've always enjoyed about how you capture what's so important sometimes in marketing. I think it's via your very astute studying and reading and and learning and of history, and that is human nature will never change. And the human nature of having interest rates that low from that long and the reciprocity of shooting rates up the fastest pace in history. If you look at it on a log normal basis, it is. On a global basis, all these central banks, it's just, I think it's irrational to not expect normal reciprocity in markets and in what's happened with what people have done. Um, during that low interest rate period. So that's why I'm looking for one of the most significant economic resets of a lifetime based on normal cycles. And that to me is a key part of it. Um, well, so we're at the stage now, it's, it's wonderful that we haven't rolled over that hard so far and that the stock market's bounced. But the key thing is everything's bounced. And the key thing to remember is history has proven that's always what happens. 1929, the stock market went down 50% to the peak in 1930 from the trial 1929. It rallied 50%. And then the rest was history. We've done similar, not in high scale, but we are doing exactly what Ben Bernanke warned they did wrong during the Great Depression is, high, is cutting money supply. Was, everything was contracting on a global basis. That's still happening. We're just rug pulling liquidity. Now, I think I, I did enjoy meeting with David Altig um, of the Atlanta Fed in Miami recently. And uh, he, yeah, so it was, it was um, the uh, Miami Economic Forum. Um, mm. And um, I had a good 10 minutes conversation with him and he pointed out, and even in the, in the, uh, in his prepared speech, he pointed out, yeah, we're, we feel confident that we covered the macro well, um, by hiking rates and then with the treasury and whoever, when the, uh, banking areas cover what happened with bank problems. And I think there's no way to judge that without the benefit of hindsight in the future, because this is the fact that they're tightening into a bank run. I think I'm just going to look back in history. So what caused the bank run in the first place? What caused those deposits to leave? Rapidly rising interest rates and going to any place else you can get a decent return other than a bank deposit at zero. T-bills. I just look at that too, you know, at 4%. So that hasn't changed. And so I think it's irrational to expect what those to be just one-offs. Now, what's human nature do? As you learn from history, you always look at the most recent example. Bear, you know, Bear Stearns in March of yeah. 2008. I remember well. I had a good friend who worked there. Um, but to me, what's different is the Fed started easing in SEP 2007. They're still tightening. So to me, it's still don't fight the Fed. Um, risk assets are elevated. Like I mentioned, on a, some of the measures of U.S. stock market still historically very expensive. Boomers are retiring and they're getting 4% of two, you know, and if they buy bonds, they might get some much more duration. I think that's where the rational money is going. Of course, we might get a default, which leaves gold. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. 
Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, what do you what do you think about gold? Gold has been one of those persistent. Yeah. It's been it's been a tricky one, right? And uh, I've I've pointed it out on this show. I'm not really a TA guy, but if you pull up the chart of gold, you know, on a on a decade or so basis, you'll see this beautiful, you know, cup and handle por- uh, formation that's just emerging, and it's but it's really found resistance right around the level where it where it currently is. And just when gold looks like it's about to break out, it seemingly never really does. So, what are your thoughts on on gold at the moment? Bull market, it's ready to break out. I can't say that about, about virtually any other market I see. So gold at the end of the quarter settled its highest level ever. That was Q1. At the end of the month, if we settle here, it's be the highest month end ever. And it's it's in the maximum disdain period. Like you said, cup and handle. It's been frustrating everybody. I see it like I just remember in the in the trading pits when you'd see a market that was offered at two and so many people, hey, I got a thousand offered at two, offered at two, and finally it flips two bit before you know it goes three bit. That's what I think is going to happen to go. I think it's going to do very much similar to what they did in 2007 and 8. It was popping up around 800, 800. And finally, before you knew it, it was 1900. It just took a couple of years. That to me is the fundamental and technical situation for gold. The deepest pockets on the planet are buying gold, central banks. Uh, don't want to fade them. One thing that's also notable about gold is, um, is gold ETF holdings have not picked up much. They're actually unchanged in the year, yet gold's up, um, what, 10% on a 12-month basis. And these ETF holdings haven't moved. So I think it's not even retail in the spaceship. I think they're going to realize this is an asset that over time versus a dollar price always go up, always goes up versus a basket of fiat, fiat currencies. Gold price always goes up and it only goes down after it goes up a lot. It's just the, the way it works because you just can't. It's that unique. The thing is, in the last many, I'd say five, 10 years, it's had decent combination competition from Bitcoin. So the way I look at gold is you got to, I think I fully expect gold to pop to 3000 at some point. I don't know when, when I try to be careful and equivalent rally that it did during the, you know, starting from seven to 11 or so was to get towards 5,000. I don't see what stops that. That's in US dollars. Now it's made highs in the euro, it made high in the yen, but I don't see it. To me, it's imprudent to hold gold anymore without some Bitcoin in that space. The key thing is if you look at that. Bitcoin to gold ratio, it's been up over time. It's starting to tick back down its bounce. I think it's going to back down again because I see gold as, a, it's, you know, it's outperforming Bitcoin on a 12-month basis. And if I'm right about this correction in the equity market, which is my base case, that's going to drag down all risk assets. Cryptos are some of the riskiest assets. It's just Bitcoin's the least risky. But gold I see is, um, yeah, I, I don't see what stops the rally. So I, I recently was at a, in, New York, I was at a mining conference. I compared gold, platinum, and palladium, and silver. And it looks bullish versus all of them, particularly silver. And people are, you know, get on these tangents and get a lot of the bugs there about Mm. being bullish silver. I'm like, well, there's a problem with silver. If we get towards recession, it's going to follow copper. That's the key thing. Um, Gold's been appreciating versus silver over time, except for maybe 10-year increments. And central banks are buying gold, not silver. (laughs) I just don't want to mess with that. That trend. So the gold to me is one of the most enduring bull markets I see ready to continue breaking out. And I see things like um, copper continue to drop. And it's all going to be predicated. The key trigger, I'll end with this, for gold to break out is when people start realizing they're not going to get that 9 to 10% annualized return they got in the S&P 500 index fund they got the last 10 years. When they start realizing, well, maybe I'll give back more of that. Maybe we're going to severe deflation. And I don't see gold to me as a top potential performer to do what it did from 07 to 11. You're absolutely right that central banks especially are buying more gold than they ever have been. Um, 
What, what do you make of that that trend? And do you sort of buy into this idea? This kind of fits in with this narrative about the U.S. failing as a reserve currency. People are worried about what happened to Russia when when war broke out with Ukraine, the freezing of the central bank uh, reserves. What, what, what do you think about that whole whole narrative? I think those those are um, trees in the forest of the dollar domination. I mean, I've heard it so many times in my career, and now's a, I mean, a good time to beat up on the dollar. Um, but I like to use, if you take a measure of the dollar versus a basket of fiat currencies, just to use the New York Fed dollar trade-weighted dollar index, the only time the dollar versus the basket of fiat currencies goes down is after it goes up a lot. And we went up a lot recently. It just backs up and then goes back to trend. There's no better example of a fiat currency on the planet. Maybe Swiss in the short term, but if the U.S. Reveal, you know, unveils its bail of protection of Europe, Russian tanks can go right down to Switzerland. I mean, it's that significant for the dollar. And I like that. I mean, that's macro, the deepest markets in the world. I mean, this discourse we're having about the debt ceiling, it's horrible, but it shows our strength. It just, we'll beat the shit out of each other. I'm sorry, I got to watch that. We'll beat, we'll beat ourselves up. And it just shows how strong we are once we come to the right conclusion, as Churchill says. You're not going to see that in China. It's mis- whatever Mr. Z says. But I like to use one specific example for the dollar that's really kept me bullish the last few years, and that's cryptos. The most widely traded cryptos are dollar tokens. That happen completely organically. Yeah. To me, crypto dollars, I call them, because they're just like euro dollars. And I remember having this debate with our, our, uh, not a conversation with my, um, our Audrey Chill Freeman, who's our equity strategist, I'm sorry, FX strategist, and pointing this out. And we came around that, well, that's a severe and significant organic sign on a global basis that there's no better base currency on the planet, still isn't, than the dollar. Now, we're going to see some of this trading in other currencies. We should see that, certainly between, say, the the yuan and the ruble. And I like to say, well, good luck with that one. Good. Try it all you want. And then where are those, all those reserves going to end up? Obviously some form of physical assets like gold, which is what they're doing. And eventually a safe and dinamis suggests maybe Bitcoin, but I, I don't, uh, I just like to point out um, once we get past this budget impasse and just imagine with the value of the Dow, you really see when you have autocratic leaders, like just happen, invade foreign countries. Um, then you realize, well, okay, do we really want to deal with the risk of Mr. Putin or Mr. Z or maybe America's not perfect, but it sure has this rule of law that helps us do what we're doing now, be able to say whatever we can. I'll give you one example. So we have an issues now with Bloomberg. We had one of my colleagues in Bloomberg who was technically um, detained for a year because she was in China and she wrote something unpleasant um, that the Chinese authorities agreed upon. So I think what's happening is we're seeing this major shift now in the most of the rule of the wall, rule of, war of uh, law in the world realizes that the dollar is the only fiat currency and it's got to be replaced with something else, but not another fiat currency. I mean, just good luck with that one. What, what would you say though to the, again, just like the historical perspective here, there have been world reserve currencies in the past, right? There are kind of like at least six of like the great periods. And a lot of these a lot of these, uh, when like these reserve currencies at the time, would even sound funny. It was like Portugal, you know, uh, the yeah. Netherlands, right? Countries you wouldn't even think of now to be in in the running or in contention. Maybe even the most recent one, which is the pound, right? Pound sterling, it even evokes yeah. images of like uh, you know being hefty and, and weighty and all that stuff. I'm sure that Churchill wasn't particularly worried at, at a certain period of time. It would have sounded crazy, right? Who, what's going to replace pound sterling? So at a certain point. You know, there is historical precedent that this stuff tends to to not last over a period of time. And then also just the one thing I just haven't 
been able to like fully convince myself of is if I was a leader of, if I was Putin or if I was she, and I just watched an enormous portion of my assets get seized and I viewed myself in competition with the government, it wouldn't happen today. It wouldn't happen tomorrow, but I would start planning. I would start contingency planning. Is that, is that what, what would you say to those like kind of maybe longer term arguments? Right now, there's still only one major currency and it's going to depend on how it works, what works out with this war and everything. But, um, and there's one alternative, it's gold, but it's also potentially Bitcoin. So that's why I long term, I have to, you know, I don't know exactly what's going to happen with the dollar, but I think I do one thing I want to point out. When people point out the demise of and how the dollar has declined 97% over a certain period, something like that, they, they always forget to include that interest. Right now, I'm getting 5% I, of my T-bills. Yeah, I'm with you on this. And I'm, I'm not getting that with Bitcoin. And I'm not getting that with gold. But they, it's just funny how people bend the narrative to fit their, their views. And so that, that 5% you're getting that UST bill is pretty darn good compared to um, gold and even the stock market, I think, right now. So I'm not worried about, to me, it's the bigger picture technology and macro and what replaces it. And I know you, we, you've studied the lessons of history. Um, and I like, you know, we've had this discussion before I look at, you know, you mentioned the Roman empire in a thousand years. I'm like, okay, U S maybe we're what, 300 years in, give us another 700 years. Um, I, I just can't wait to hopefully yeah. live long enough to see how this period works out with these two autocratic leaders who are very completely, I mean, I have to look at China right now as somewhat of a combination between peak Japan and peak Soviet Union. And maybe somewhat worse with an auto, everything I read, everything I see and from colleagues, everything, just the least in contra, um, pushback on uh, consultants. <laughs> like, good luck. You, they, we're the benefit, we're the value to our countries. We criticize everything. We make ourselves better. So um, I don't see how they're going to do well in a, in a world that's moving so fast in technology. And that's in this technology that's moving the fastest adopted the dollar as its base layer. I look at dollar tokens and just hope the u.s doesn't mess up this transition to a digital world you you mentioned yeah. in your last note that um there's a it, it, managed money so hedge funds basically are record uh net short u.s treasury bonds why do you think that is is that debt ceiling related i think it's related to that it's also what happened in this cycle last time this happened was around 2018 when um, um i like to use it versus open interest it's about the highest ever when um um, the two year, the 10 year yield was around 3% and then COVID hit and everything and it dropped to what near 50 basis points. I think it's going to do the same, but the key thing I like to point out is, um, that is very bearish for yields, bullish for prices. Why it's happening. I think it's related, but a lot of it's probably basis trading. People are doing the cash versus futures. I used to tra trade basis. Uh, I used to have hair too. So you short the, short the futures and you're buying the cash and getting so there's certain nuances in there. I just don't, I used to know very well. I don't track anymore. I think that's a big part of it. The fact is to me, the indications are the shortest ever for bonds, tens and fives, um, managed money, net positions, basically head funds, which to me is not so much bullish for treasuries, but it's just as bullish for gold because you look at these same kind of things in gold and you don't really have that. And gold is not dominated by, gold is so big and physical. It's not dominated by futures versus treasuries. When I was in the pits in the eighties, the guys in New York, this was in Chicago, we used to get upset that oh you guys are driving a market and that was well before there was dominant futures so i look at this as very bullish for gold it's a good indication that you should be buying long bonds and this is just an indication for these offside positions and buying gold because the last time that when these things happen when yields 
um, drop because Fed, you know, people are covering their shorts and pr pushing prices up. It's usually an in indicative for obviously bond prices and gold prices are going out to go up. And maybe it's a hedge on default, but I think it's more basis related. Yeah. And wh what do you think about yields um, going forward from here? So we've got uh, the yield curve is still inverted, right? At least looking at the, the twos and tens. In, you know, additionally, if you look out over the course of the next 10 years, so I think the, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, they've forecast a deficit of between $1.5 and $2 trillion per year. Um, so that's a lot of, of new issuance coming out into the bond market. And I'm curious if you think that's going to move uh, the needle in terms of yields at all. There, there's a picture of me uh, I, I have from a newspaper from 1994, three, I think it was, pointing out how high the deficit was and how bad that was for yields. Um, and so I look at it as it's going to, we're all turning Japanese. And I think <laughs> the bond, the 10 year note yield that was 4% bid recently went offered at four. Now it's trading 3.5 or so. Now it's going to go offered at three, offered at two, maybe down to one. I think yields are going to drop in a significant re deflationary recession, drop a lot. And yes, deficits will go up. And let's look at the example of Japan. Now, at some point, there's going to be an un unwind of, of all that. But in a typical normal recession that's deflationary, and I'm seeing all the signs of commodities. I mean, natural gas is collapsing. Copper's going down. Crude oil's going down. Even all the eggs are going to go down a lot. I can explain that later. Yields will, will decline. So... Um, 3.5% 10 year yield versus Fed funds at 5% is clear recessionary. Our IRA Jersey, my, our chief, um, interest rate strategist is less, he's calling for a bullish, uh, steepener, which means at some point the Fed's going to use, but not yet. I'm just way too early. I was wrong about buying bonds, but now I think this is going to be one of the best buying opportunities in, in a lifetime. And I think yield's going to drop a real lot into recession. And that's also based on the S&P just going from what's a four handle in front, 4,000, drop towards three. So 10, you know, um, yield dropping to two. Yeah. This time next year, maybe. We'll see. I mean, what stops that? Fed may be easing. Fed easing will help tilt yields lower. But if the Fed delays easing as we get towards recession, it's going to be more depression. Yeah. You know what? I tend, I tend to agree with you, Mike. And one thing that I, I mean... I've referenced it a whole bunch on this on this show before, but Jack Schwager, his uh, sort of seminal Market Wizards book, that was 1989, right? That was four years, I, knew, I think. I knew a couple of those, those guys. I remember Charlie D was one key guy in there. Charlie D. Francesca, who slowly passed away, but learned a lot of a few lessons from him. RIP, Charlie. But in, in in many of these interviews, right, they're talking about the same thing that you and I are talking about now. Yeah. You could you could basically repaste the figures and the names of the politicians yeah. that we're talking about here onto a conversation that was happening, you know, 30 years ago. So I, I, I sort of tend to be in that, in that same boat. And I also think, you know, one of the, one of the arguments that off gets overstated is, well, who, who would buy bonds if they're yielding 0%? Well, as it turns out, banks, <laughs> banks will yeah. buy them because they have to, yeah. you know? So I, yeah. I, I agree with you. Well, it's maybe sometimes better if we don't disagree. So let's look at some of the indications that keeping the Fed, I wanted to mention this. If you look at measures of CPI, I just love to use that owner's equivalent rent level. It's the highest ever at 8%. There's mm. only one way for it to go, to, down, to drop a lot. And why should it go down a lot? Well, we just had the biggest pump in liquidity ever, the biggest pump in housing prices ever. And it's just starting to go down early right now. Just wait till it accelerates. And what stops it from accelerating? Aggressive Federal Reserve easing is typically what it takes, and they're not going to be doing that. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know 
that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, Rollups, Count Abstraction, MEV, App Change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. The demographics thing has always made an enormous amount of sense to me when it comes to deflation. But uh, let me just in the sake of of debate here, let me push back and give you some pro-inflation arguments and just see what you do with them or what you'd respond. So enjoy these. (laughs) Awesome. Great. So one of the things that uh, that I've I think it was Pippa Malgram that initially made this observation to me, and I've just thought a lot about it, is there's a, a psychology that comes with inflation that's sometimes hard to actually pin down. And, you know, we love to give our politicians crap for saying, for blaming corporates, but corporates have done pretty well. They have made, they've, they've demonstrated quite a bit more pricing power. And I think that's just because they all sort of woke up and said, hey, people expect us to raise prices, might as well raise prices. And so far, they've sort of gotten away with that. And that psychology has gotten entrenched. Additionally, you know, when you look at how politicians handle these periods of time, right, there is this great big overhang that we eventually need to figure out, right, which is that our debt is growing far faster than our GDP. At, maybe it is Japanification. Maybe it's maybe we wake up in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, but I do believe at some point something ends up breaking there. And I do feel like one of the, th- you know, the way that we're going to get out of that basically is I know you said default is an oxymoron here, but I feel like inflation is a sort of a soft default that actually feels like a not too bad option. And then the last thing is just, again, I want to be a little careful about narratives here, but this whole multi multipolar world, I do think on the margin, we will move supply chains out of the East. I don't know if that means that we will put, yeah, I don't know if that means we're going to, I don't think we're going to put production back in the, in the U.S., but there'll be some degree of nearshoring uh, with slightly more expensive labor markets. And even in the meantime, there's just going to be a whole bunch of friction. And I feel like that drives up wages and that drives inflation as well. So honestly, when I look out into the 10-year future, I see all these inflationary impulses as well. And I'd love to know what you think about those. So there's only one way I think we're going to have inflation in the next 10 years, and that is if we debase our currency a lot. I mean, as Milton Friedman said, and I think inflation is a currency phenomenon always. So what is a 3D printer? I had a good colleague, a friend of mine I met recently, does industrial design and pointed out, oh, I've got three 3D printers in my basement. I put out so many of these widgets, whatever, a day. I used to import those from China. It's not happening yeah. anymore. It's just so deflationary. It's, yeah. um, and, I, and I love that case. You cannot use the 70s and stuff as an example. I feel right now we're heading towards the most significant deflationary period in our lifetimes. And that's going to depend on if we debase the currency, if the Fed eases a lot. If, we, if they stay tight like they are now, all the lessons of history point to why measure inflation on a, on a 12-month basis? When you look at a 120-month basis, 120-month basis, 10 years, it's collapsing. It bounces collapsing. There's good reason for that. One key reason, when people start losing jobs, that psychology is just a tree in the forest. Mm. You, can't, you ain't got money. When money disappears from the system and you stop the ability of people to buy stuff, you ain't got money. You can't buy stuff. And uh, that's, again, Jim Bianco. So I like to point out, I used to remember seeing this in a trading, but sometimes money just goes poof. It disappears. And that's what I'm afraid of. In um, It's happened to commodities. 
I'm afraid of in the equity markets. If we get that little poof, we get the normal correction, there won't be that ability to buy stuff, to buy condos in Miami as I look over at the condos in Miami or land in um, the Midwest. Um, unemployment will be the bigger problem. Give me a job. Yeah. I need money so I can buy stuff. I mean, depressionary type of inflation is what I'm afraid of, but mostly because of rapidly advancing technology. The key thing is that all the major trends in history point that way. And unless we really print a lot of money and do what we did last time, why did we get that inflation? Well, we bumped up the money supply by 26% of 40% part of it. And now we're taking that away. Just that's the way it's always worked. The biggest pumps, booms, and busts in history have always been back of liquidity that goes away. And we're in that process of taking that liquidity away. So I'll use that one example. We only have 75 years of history. And the producer price index has never fallen as fast as it is now in the last 10 months, ever. Yeah. Okay. So what stops that, Michael? Lower plateau. You got to get mm -hmm. real low or pumping money. Those are only two key factors. Right. And so I agree with all that, but I think that second point still stands about the problem with our deficit. And I know, I know people oh, yeah, talking I, about I, this forever. I, I, I hear, yeah. because I do think that's the, I mean, even, all right. So even in the short term, right, if you think about our bank system as actually a liability of the U.S. government, which I'm sort I I do think that that's ultimately the lens that they would look at this, which is we don't want people to be worried about bank deposits in the United States. The insurance fund for the FDIC is 125 billion dollars. That is not nearly enough to insure right the banking system. Ultimately, you could sort of view any shortfall in the banking system as a direct liability of the Treasury. So that's like very short term. But even like moving out slightly longer term, what do we have? We have entitlements. And the entitlements we basically promised are going to grow at a 7% rate per year. That's the societal growth expectation. The pension shortfall thing, again, those, there have been headlines for 10 or 20 years. My co-host on the show, Mark Yusko, talks about it all the time. But we're going to be short there ultimately as well. And then on the long term, we have this big, this big debt overhang. So it's like on every time frame that I kind of look at, there's this there's this uh, need uh, to print money. And then if you just look at how, what, how's the government reacted to basically, look, I'm, you know, I'm 29 years old. Every financial crisis that I've ever paid attention to has been met the exact same way, which is immediately to slam on the money printer. It's my entire financial memory. And I could be, I could be wrong. I mean, they could break that trend and I could be wrong about that. I could be overweighting it due to recency bias or whatever, but that's my, that's, what, so uh, I, conclusion lessons, I of, to. lessons of history. I'll give you some of my lessons. So first of all, I remember trading JGBs in the early 90s and everybody I spoke to on the phones. I was sales, trading sales. Everybody spoke to oh, I'm yeah. I'm short and I'm happy. Yeah, they all, I just, when you see so many people lose money on the same narratives over time, like this commodity super cycle, I saw so many people lose jobs and money um, in the last commodity super cycle that failed. Um, and recently I was on this call and the guy said, I've been trading stocks for 10 years. And I'm bullish. And I'm like, okay, well, you got to lift the bear market where they go down and stay down. And you need to, the only time to really get bullish and really bear markets is when they feel like it feels like they're never going to go back up again. And a lot of people say that. So I just have learned those lessons. I've seen it. I hope someday it all will work out. But this, there is a, uh, I've seen so many people short treasuries on greater deficits and lose money that I gave up on even mentioning it. So mm. I, I look at it, uh, the deficit is just, it's the opposite. Here's a fact that um, in this country, particularly in Japan, but in this country where the base currency is, the greater the deficit, the lower the bond yields. Just this trend. It has been lasting for many years. 
And I just, I'll go with it until proven wrong for a good reason. So I guess I'm kind of a sissy, a trend, your friend, huh? <laughs> hey, I, I mean, look, it's worked for a really long period of time. That to me is naturally counterintuitive, but clearly there's a rhyme and a reason and it works. And maybe the, so the intuitive reason first that it wouldn't work like that is the more bonds there are, the more issuance, the higher yields ultimately need to be. I guess you could take the other the other side of that argument is the more debt that I need to issue, I need yields to be lower so that I can afford to issue that debt. Therefore, I will make yields lower. <laughs> you know, it works there's both ways, actually. And there's part of that. And there's also if a lot of your debt is owned by non-sovereign or they say foreigners, what's their vested interest? Probably for that debt not to default and to, you know, for yeah. those yields that continue to decline, you make the money on the duration. The T-bill is a different story, but I, I look at it. So that's where I come to. There's a default in there. And that is what is definitely um, some point when this can't is unsustainably, the unsustainable part kicks in is it's still favorable things like gold and Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. So let's um, maybe in our, our closing minutes here, I would love to just get your, we sort of talked around uh, all the issues that I was hoping to to discuss with you today, but your sort of outlook on the S&P or stocks in general for the next year, pretty bearish, right? So maybe down to 3000 S&P sort of, sort of range. Yeah. How do you think, uh, you know, if I, if I had to put you the screws to you and, and ask you how you think uh, Bitcoin gold and let's say the long bond like TLT, where do we end the year at? So I can't really put where we end the year. I can't put, I can put where I think they're going. So I yeah. think, like I said, I think end of the year is going to really depend. Everything will tilt it if we get this rollover in the stock market. If the biggest surprise for me, for me will be with that. If that doesn't happen, then I have to reassess a lot of my views. So if the stock market, let's put it this way. My base case, it's going to 3000. Bitcoin's going to go down. I don't know how far it might make a new low. Um, Cryptos will go down real hard. And we're going to purge some of these 24,000 cryptos, get rid of some. They're just silly. Um, but Bitcoin, Ethereum, will come out ahead. So my base case is that's going to happen. S&P 500 goes to 3,000. Yields drop a lot, maybe by, by, by the end of this year. But next year will be more enduring. It'll just continue that. And I think we're supposed to get one of those periods like we did. I remember from 2002 to like three and one and four. It took forever. to. You have to get through this enduring period of a severe... Um, I would say purge of assets. To me, that's my base case. The biggest surprise will be if we don't go down the stock market. I don't fully expect Bitcoin to outperform that case. So there's kind of a win-win. Yeah. But um, that would be kind of strange, I think. And historically, it will prove that, oh, so the rules and laws of liquidity and pumps and dumps and cycles in markets may no longer apply. I'd be kind of concerned about that. So I, I just I got to take it a day, base case by a, a day at a time basis, and by base case to me is pretty significant recession. Oh, here's how I'll end with: the market's basically already priced for a soft landing. David Altag even said that when I spoke to him. It's priced in. So I look at it simplistically as an option market person. When I used to be on client on phones with customers, and when we went off phones, creating strategies, the value in a strategy is to go counter to that. Because you can structure an option position where you can make 10x if what's already priced in doesn't happen. That's where you, so that's why I'm kind of leaning. I'm sticking with that in my um, in, um, my outlooks, and I'm looking for key leading. Always looking for indicators. So what happened last week? Copper breaking down is mm. kind of going the way I was expecting. Bitcoin and Ethereum peaking. Uh, Bitcoin around thirty thousand. Um, Ethereum around two thousand is going that way. Um, 
10 year note yield dropping. It could not stay above 4% very long, dropping down. Five, uh, two year olds could not stay above 5%, despite Fed tightening, could not do it, offered back at four now. Everything's leaning that way. Um, and copper was, I think, the big one last week when it broke down. So I'll end with this. The key price, here's some simple facts. The key, the price of copper um, is $2.75 a pound. If you take the S&P 500, divide by 1,000, it's almost exactly the same since 2016. So right now, copper's broken down and implies S&P 500's 10% overvalued. Maybe that's changing. I don't know. But what I'm afraid is going to happen is what's happened in natural gas, is everything is going to go back to the averages they were right before COVID. Natural gas did it. Crude oil, that's around $57 a barrel. Nothing, not a big deal. In copper, that's around two, it's 375 now, it's around 275. So that implies another, the S&P going down to below 3,000. That's what I think is going to happen. Yeah. Mike, it's always a pleasure to get you on here. I love our kind of mix of uh, what's going on in markets today versus the historical bent is always a ton of fun for me. Um, and you put out great work as well uh, at Bloomberg. So if folks want to follow you, find out more about the work, subscribe to the work that you do, what's the best way to do that? Uh, LinkedIn, um, you can find me, uh, Mike McGlone Bloomberg, and Twitter, Mike McGlone, um, um, at Mike McGlone 11. And one thing I want to point out is I want to thank you for what you do, because to me, you, what you do by putting out your thought provoking and your discourse every day is what's really changed in the world. I can be at the gym or working out and listen to something like your podcast, which I listen to you and Mark all the time, usually when I'm working out. Thanks. It's, it's, um, but that's, a, a, that's the value of human intellectual ability. I think that's rising and per certainly free market and open information. That's, I don't think we're going to look back from the future and say, oh, that was a revolution in, in us raising our, our bar of knowledge. And to me, that's what's happening. Would you help make that happen? So I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate that. All right. With those nice words said about me, I think we can end it. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Yeah. I'll do it again Cheers. soon. Cheers.